The podcast is strong. The podcast is strong. The podcast is strong. It's Southpod <laughs> Deep Space Nine, everybody. This is the show where I, Angel Marti, take your friend and mine, Southpaw Sam, on a journey into Star Trek fandom where we watch episode by episode Star Trek Deep Space Nine, the most communist Star Trek series. And we discuss the political, cultural, philosophical messages of every episode, both the overt and the implicit. Uh, the episode this week is episode 13 of season one, The Storyteller. Sam, do you have any initial uh, impressions you want to share before we get into the play-by-play? Because of our last episode and how we had a lot of criticisms, especially uh, in particular, you had a lot of criticisms. And I feel like I had no idea what the order of episodes was, but this is almost like the Star Trek gods giving us a redo to talk about the same themes again. It does feel like a little bit of a of a of a bit of aftercare after a after a bad episode. <laughs> so, well, we get into it and, uh, you know, we know that it's going to be a good episode because we open on Miles O'Brien. Uh, well, well, we have uh, a diplomatic situation going on, like every day at Deep Space Nine. There's going to be some talks that Cisco is going to broker between uh, two uh, Bajoran factions. But O'Brien is going to be going on a mission to Bajor and a runabout, but he seems hesitant to go. He's asking Cisco if he could be replaced by somebody else, even though, by his own admission, everything's running smoothly for once. Uh, but then we find out that the reason why he doesn't want to go is because this is a mission that forces him to be a guest star on the latest adventure of Dr. Horny! <laughs> uh, he's going with Bashir. You know, what was funny was when O'Brien was asking about that, I was thinking O'Brien is literally asking the same thing you always bring up, Angel. Why are you sending me instead of an extra or a guest star, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I am the chief of operations. <laughs> like I should be here, but you know what? Uh, the you know we all know that the higher priority than proper maintenance and operation of a military installation is uh, character development, yes. especially in dramatic fiction. Because that's just what we're going to get here. With we get a nice little we get this is the introduction to the nice little odd couple of Bashir and O'Brien. Uh, it turns out that the reason why, so this is a primarily medical mission. There's an unexplained medical emergency uh, that is uh, affecting a village on Bajor, and it's only been described as uh, something that threatens the village with extinction. And uh, Julian, of course, you know, is very happy to be on this mission with O'Brien and, you know, clearly wants to be friends with O'Brien, but O'Brien is not having it. So we uh, back to uh, what it is, these these uh, political talks. So Bajor has specifically asked Cisco to be sort of a, you know, neutral, although that's debatable uh, party uh, to broker talks between these two factions. One is called the Paku and one is called the Navat. Uh, Kira, uh, when asked how she uh, feels about uh, these two people, she says that there's an old Bajoran saying that the land and the people are one, which to me feels like something they might have plagiarized from an actual like indigenous American tri <laughs> tribe or something, because it just sounds like one of those things that sometimes science fiction does where they take things that like real people said and put them in the mouths of aliens. <laughs> uh, apparently, the two, uh, the, the area of land that both the Paku and Navat uh, live on 
are, are very harsh and thus both are correspondingly harsh people. So that line you brought up, obviously, it did seem like a hat tip to indigenous people. But it also made me think about the time period of when DS9 was first airing, especially season one. And it made me immediately think about Palestine. And especially in how they described the Paku and the Navat, it sounded like how liberals or centrists might be describing the tensions between Palestine and Israel. And maybe not even like trying to put their own politics onto it, but try to describe it in a way that's non-threatening to either side, whoever's watching. Yeah, I think definitely, definitely it, to to sort of point out the first instance of what I think might have made Sam uh, start to feel like this was like a better redo of some of the themes hit upon in battle lines. It's like, we, it does seem like we're going, you know, it does touch upon some of these themes that, that yes, I as well also was like, oh, wow, they're really hitting the Israel-Palestine button pretty hard right now. But this one at the very least doesn't seem to be such a, white liberals having this paternalistic view of it and seems to be a little bit more sympathetic. But uh, we also get a touch of like 90s sports movies here uh, for kids because uh, the big twist we learn is that uh, the leader of the Paku or the Tetrarch, as they call them, is a girl. <laughs> she's a she's a teenage girl leading uh, the talks on here. So we cut back to the uh, runabout to Bajor where uh, Bashir uh, and O'Brien are on their trip. But Bashir has a nice bit of like very sort of forward, you know, honest vulnerability here where he basically just asks O'Brien like, yo, what's your deal? Do you hate me? And and I I really start I, I think this scene in particular is where we start to see like Bashir become a little bit more than Dr. Horny. I think this is where we finally start to see the development into like a genuinely like charming and relatable character because here in a scene like this where he's talking to Bashir, it just see uh, sorry, where he's talking to Miles, it's we we understand that Julian is just somebody who's genuinely curious about other people and the world around him and his curiosity fuels this kind of enthusiasm that can sometimes seem like uh, obnoxious and overbearing and honestly I can really relate to that and that's like something that I've dealt with a lot in my life and sometimes that desire for just wanting that curiosity and the desire for connection with people you know with can sometimes if not directed into more productive areas can manifest as like you know hitting on like all any woman who seems nice to you and so here we're finally seeing the redirection of that energy into a fulfilling homosocial bond with another man. So I think we're going to, I think I'm going to start, hopefully we all start feeling a little less creeped out by Bashir as this season at, from this point in the season. So they beam down to this village, which uh, I like to summarize the aesthetics of, of this village is like space Flintstones. It's like living in caves, but make it technology. They are met by the magistrate of this village, Farron Cog, who takes them to see Zordon dying in bed. No, it's sorry, it's not Zordon. That was a nod to the 1995 Mighty Morphin Power Rangers movie, if anybody remembers that one. That when Zordon was like a, just a, a dude in a trash bag lying there dying after his uh, tube was broken. <laughs> Anybody else emotionally traumatized by that? Uh but it's not Zordon, it's uh, the village elder known at, uh, and spiritual leader who is just known as the Sirah. Uh, and apparently, if he dies, 
we all die. That's what uh, the magistrate says. And uh, I keep getting distracted by the fact that Syrah is also one of my favorite kinds of wine. So I just imagine <laughs> this is like a vineyard where they're like, if the Syrah dies, the harvest will be ruined. Back on the station, uh, Cisco tries a preliminary meeting between uh, the Tetrarch of the uh, the Paku, whose name is Varus Sewell, the teenage girl, and uh, Woban, the leader of the Navat, who's like basically uh, the <laughs> he's kind of like a, a neckbeard without the beard because he's just like like a stereotypical condescending man uh, into contrast against the. A uh, young, uh, capable woman who nobody takes seriously. So here's where it really starts leaning in the, uh, where it really starts leaning heavily on the on the Israel-Palestine allegory because it turns out the source of the dispute is that there's a historical treaty between the Paku and the Navat that uh, that uh, the border between the two peoples is supposed to be a specific river. However, during the occupation by the Cardassians. The, the Cardassians diverted the river during like their for some kind of industrial reason. And because the river's course has changed now, there's there's the dispute over is where is the actual border is, you know, the new it has the Navat, uh, has the Paku claimed uh, new territory, new territory or or do they no longer use the river as the border? So. I caught the same thing you did about Palestine and Israel again, but it also made me think about the Korean Peninsula, especially because the border is man-made and that bit about the Cardassians recreating that border based on whatever was convenient for them definitely reminded me of Korea. Not that the writers weren't necessarily thinking about that, but just because like the things that happen in one place happen in a lot of places. So a lot of these types of engineering and statecraft didn't just happen in one area. That type of meddling happened in a lot of areas. Right. And to go back to one of my problems with uh, with battle lines was like, you know, with with the the dispute between the Ennis and the Noel Ennis, they just sort of went that whole simplistic. We forgot what it what the whole argument was about. <laughs> but here it's like, yeah, like, uh, you know, like I said in that episode, too, it's like the, the British partition of Palestine, you know, and like actual European powers, like basically imposing that border the same way. That's why, why do you like, if anybody looks at a modern map of Africa, why do you think all of the countries have such like neat square borders when like no other countries in Europe have like such (laughs) nice, like angular borders like that? It's because, because of, you know, uh, arbitrary carving up of borders by colonial powers. And here they like have an actual, like, uh, realistic uh historical analog to that which they you know i guess maybe because the 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 ennis and the noel ennis weren't bajorans they couldn't have woven the cardassians into it but anyway uh the other thing that it made me think about was palestinian voices because even by the 90s there weren't many mainstream palestinian voices which i'm sure also includes writers rooms with a lot of progressives now being more sympathetic to palestine and there being more palestinian voices now I wonder how well all these old takes age. Like progressives might remember DS9 one way and then when they watch it again, especially in the current climate where, like I said, we're much more sympathetic to Palestine and we know more Palestinians. There's more Palestinians in the media who are speaking up about Palestine. Maybe not necessarily this episode, but there's some other episodes where people might think like, huh, this episode didn't age as well as I thought. 
I mean, we kind of do have this one and Battle Lines as a nice little goofus and gallant pair to like, you know, <laughs> an, an immediate, you know, comparison of what ages well, what doesn't age well. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, because this scene is getting too serious, though, Quark enters with everyone's drinks. And in the, in the, uh, when he hands uh, Vera Sewell her drink, he calls her a little lady. And uh, this is right after uh, uh, Woban uh, keeps insisting that uh, her father, who we can assume is the previous leader of the Paku, would have been more reasonable. So uh, she is able, she's sort of has it and then uh, dumps her drink right in Quark's face, uh, which, of course, Quark just sort of gets to be the existential punching bag uh, for this episode. And, um, but here, here we have, you know, this, not that, I mean, Quark's presence, while it is comic relief, it does kind of solidify the little, the, the, the sub theme of, okay, uh, women, especially young women in positions of responsibility, constantly being condescended to, and, uh, the need to sort of, uh, uh, compensate and be like more, uh, uh aggressive, uh, to compensate. Then we cut back to the promenade where we see that uh, the makeup budget is much higher for this episode than some of the previous ones because we just get two completely random aliens with no connection to any of the plots that they have these cool, like, scaly lizard faces and these tails hanging off the back of their heads. Like, it just made me think about, like, how just back in Q-less we saw those two aliens with, like, literal bags over their heads. <laughs> this is, it. it feels like, it feels like, you know, the first dinner when you first like when you get paid and you're just like tonight i'm eating good for dinner and then like the last day before you get paid again it's like ah oh, toothpaste for dinner we see that. but then of course we see these really amazing looking aliens and then it's just nog and jake are throwing shit at them from off a balcony uh because this episode's because re- this scene is really about how uh jake and nog are basically just uh bored kids living in the space suburbs at this point uh, Jake's talking about um, wanting to go to the hollow suite to play baseball, but Nog doesn't want to. And then, of course, because two kids are minding their own business, here comes Principal Goo Cop. Odo tells them that they are not allowed to dangle, no dangling out in the promenade. <laughs> uh, and it just made me think of like, yeah, I guess I guess now that like DS9 is a little less chaotic and is more of like an OK place to live. It, it is like these ki- these kids are just it just reminds me of me growing up where it was like, what can we do? Go to the mall or nothing. Uh, <laughs> A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Because Bashir's finally maturing, the horniness, you know, horniness is like energy. It cannot be like created or destroyed. So it's just uh, retransferred somewhere else because Nog sees Vera's Sewell on the promenade and uh, starts feeling a little uh, birds and bees action in his lobes. But before we can see that develop, uh, we go back to Bajor. So we learn that uh, the Surah, he has an assistant named Hovath. And uh, he's, you know, in his compromised condition, he's telling Hovath uh, that he has has a, a duty to be somewhere by nightfall. 
Uh, but Bashir's telling him he's in no shape to go anywhere. But then he, then he, uh, the Syrah starts talking about how the prophets must have sent somebody. First, he thinks maybe it's Bashir who was sent by the prophets. Uh, but then he realizes that the prophets probably uh, have boundaries. So then he's like, oh no, it must be O'Brien who they must have sent. So he asks O'Brien to come over to his bedside uh, as it, with uh, troubled breaths. And uh, he tells uh, O'Brien that uh, there is another Skywalker. I mean, that uh, the prophets have not failed them. The minister, so the, the magistrate, sorry, I keep saying minister when I mean magistrate. I don't even know if those two things are functionally any different. But the leader, the leader person who's not old and dying uh, comes in. He asks Bashir what the diagnosis is. And uh, Bashir diagnoses him as being an old fuck who's going to soon be an old dead fuck. So he really can't do anything. The minister brings up, however, that uh, there's this creature called the Dalrock who lives in the woods and comes to attack the village every year at the end of harvest season. And uh, it comes for five nights and only the Syrah is strong enough to defeat it. We only had enough Syrah for one night, but by miracle, it lasted five. (laughs) So we cut back to the station to prove that like the, the horny, uh, like the, just the specter of horniness has moved from Bashir into Nog. He, he pulls a Julian and says he found out where Varys is staying, where her quarters is and takes uh, Jake to go meet her, I guess. But, uh, when they, uh, Nog's like too nervous to function properly when, because he's seeing a woman, I guess. And when they finally get a chance to talk to her, Jake ends up playing it completely smooth and uh, ends up uh, just convincing her that they're there sent as like a, a, a welcoming committee from DS9, the, the preteen, not quite kitty welcome committee. Uh, and then he convinces her to go along with them to watch some ships go to the wormhole. And they, they then say, we come with us. We know the best place to watch, which confirms it is canonical that DS9 has a makeout point. <laughs> So back on Bajor, the Syrah, he stumbles out of bed at nightfall and then goes to stand on this uh, precipice near the village square. And this menacing cloud starts to form above them, sort of like uh, in Ghostbusters when when Gozer, you know, starts to appear above Dana Barrett's apartment building, uh, probably filmed with a similar technique, too, because it's a very much like a cloud tank kind of thing going. Uh, O'Brien scans it, is scanning with his tricorder, and he says he doesn't notice any atmospheric disturbance. And then finally, the Syrah uh, begins his monologue, which is really like worthy of any Shakespearean actor doing a cameo on on a Star Trek show. Uh, basically, he just sort of we're never really told if there's a specific format to the story, but he's just basically saying like the Dalrock, he is. Really pissed off, but too bad. We can beat him. It, and he shows up. He describes the fury of the Dalrock. Uh, O'Brien's continuing to scan it. They confirm it's not a hologram. So we know that it's not It's not something that simple. But then we see that like, as the villagers start to get scared of this Dalrock, the Syrah starts hyping him up. He just basically says, the village is strong enough to beat him. Come on, we're strong enough. But because instead of like physically attacking this Dalrock beast, what happens is as they feel sufficiently like hyped, this energy beam materializes coming off of them and shoots at the Dalrock, which basically means the Syrah 
got them all to do the Care Bear stare. That's basically <laughs> how they defeat the Dalrock. Unfortunately, after finally defeating the Dalrock for this night, because it's the third night, oh no, sorry, it's the fourth night, the Syrah collapses because he has having a relapse of old. And uh, the Dalrock actually uh, fights back and shoots some lightning that actually causes some damage to some of the cave areas. So we know for sure it's not just a purely elusive image. It must be like some actual thing capable of fucking shit up. Uh, but here, I, as the Dalrock's actually attacking... Uh, I love that O'Brien's response is literally just to go, bloody hell, <laughs> which I feel like that's the way any Starfleet officer with as much experience as he does, as he has, should respond to all the sci-fi shit that they keep seeing. Like, like it's somebody who's been around that much already. I feel like any kind of, no matter what kind of amazing supernatural creature if I were in their place, yeah, I would just be like, oh, fuck, not this again. So thank you, O'Brien, for just, again, being the most relatable cre- uh, character on this entire show. But uh, with the Syrah out of commission, the village descends into chaos and everybody's the Care Bear stare is broken and and everybody uh, starts scattering and, and uh, panicking. Uh, the Syrah demands that O'Brien be his successor and starts feeding him lines. He starts... Uh, he starts telling him what to say. And uh, that is enough, apparently. Them hearing O'Brien say the right things to say gets them to rematerialize the Care Bear stare and finally defeat the Dalrock. So O'Brien's first time performing. He doesn't bomb too hard. And in my experience, that just means that now he's going to be one of those insufferable people who then turns his Facebook profile picture into a picture of himself at an open mic. And he's <laughs> going to talk about how storytelling is his mission, his calling. And and uh, he's, you know, he's going to need a blow to his ego pretty soon. But back to so back to O'Brien, though. So the Syrah keeps feeding him lines. And much like how Americans don't seem to care when they watch Joe Biden slur over lines on his own teleprompter, uh, the villagers enthusiastically accept him as their new doughy Irish savior. Um, but much like Dewey Cox, Syrah dies the moment he gets off stage. If anybody's seen Walk Hard, one of my favorite movies. But uh, so, so he's dead, like dead, dead. He doesn't even like grab anybody and say, make me live like he's dead. And they're like, O'Brien's the new Syrah, and he literally does like the Tom and Jerry nervous gulp, like when when that happens <laughs> as as it cuts as it cuts to a commercial in that moment. Like I, I mean, if it was anybody other than like Call Meanie, who's like just so able to be this very relatable and realistic schmo, it would have looked cartoonish. But because it's him doing it, it's like you buy it. So back on the station. Um, we see the negotiations are not going very well. And uh, Cisco calls Varys into his office, and uh, unlike uh, Hoban, or Woban, the, the Navat dude, uh, Cisco talks to her in a very respectful, like, adult way, uh, you know, uh, about needing to at least uh, entertain the prospect of compromise. Because it just seems that, like, the, the, the reason why the talks aren't going well is just, it seems specifically that, that Vera specifically is just like not willing to entertain any kind of thing that isn't the full getting what she wants. And then uh, again, another note that I think makes it 
want me to compare this episode positively to Battle Lines is that he asks her flatly, are your people as ready as you are to die for this land? Which like, it makes that it is like Cisco. Uh, I remember he asks like the, the Ennis and the, and the Noel Ennis, like when, when uh, their leaders are failing to reach any kind of solution, like, are you as ready to keep dying over and over as your leaders are? But again, this time it's like, there's more grounded in a real dispute. And also when we think about Cisco and the Federation, we think about the U.S., but Cisco pushing diplomacy is nothing like the U.S. And in particular, pushing diplomacy is very unpopular in today's climate. But to your point about the same beats as battle lines, even the religious aspects of the B-plot is very similar to battle lines, except more interesting. Right. Yeah. No, it doesn't. I, I didn't I I I didn't even think about the whole like yeah the the Syrah versus um Kaiopaka but uh but yeah no the, I re- I remember specifically saying that Opaka's placement in that story just felt so arbitrary but here you know the Syrah's plot is like it, it also also uh you know it, it's just the the two plots here this is the first time where we have like an episode or at least one of the first times where we really do have a very separate A plot and B plot that don't really intersect at all. So we get to sort of, we have the freedom as the audience to sort of make our own interpretations about how they are thematically similar. Yeah. So Bulk and Skull, I mean, Jake and Nog are on their way to meet up with Varys for their uh, date. Uh, Nog insists that because he saw her first that uh, she's his, but Jake points out correctly that he, uh, Nog, can barely say anything intelligent in front of her. <laughs> uh, so they find her, and she's uh, quite sullen. Uh, but now they're actually uh, in the, <laughs> the, the, the unsaid uh, heightening of stakes in the scene is that now they're dangling off the promenade. Uh, but so she confides in Jake and Nog that she's sort of in unspecific terms, that she's sort of in a situation where, you know, she... Somebody wants something from her. She wants something from them and how to manage it. And Nog, of course, being the, uh, the Ferengi, the business boy, basically, basically guides her through the whole fundamental concept of transactional thinking uh, and compromise as if she was like five instead of 15. It's kind of interesting. It's like he's literally saying like, like, you have to think about where the opportunity for you to get something you want if you give up something. One thing I also like about this episode is that I think Nog is a little bit less essentialized, um, you know, as a Ferengi, because like uh, Jake and Nog both talk about how when they have a difficult decision to make, they ask their dad uh, for help, you know, when they have a tough decision. However, um, Varys' parents have the uh, same disease that the Syrah has, which is uh, being dead. So that's a bit of a problem here. But uh then Jake and her are able to bond over having a dead mom and uh, the fact that they both seem to have a shared respect for Captain Sisko. Back in the village, Julian seems excited by the whole situation while O'Brien is annoyed, uh, a dynamic that will become very familiar in here. And uh, I like Julian says, like, for all we know, you really were sent by the prophets. <laughs> O'Brien, however, as we've said, is distressed about his new duty to defeat the Dalrock uh, as the new Syrah, but his distress is interrupted by uh, uh, the villagers uh, giving a bunch of gifts and offerings for him as the new Syrah, including three women. Although O'Brien, uh, faithful 
immediately brings up the fact that he has a wife and daughter, not even a hint of temptation on his face. That is our Miles, our wholesome, (laughs) faithful king. So uh, we see the problem. uh, uh, There's an additional problem here besides uh, O'Brien just uh, having too many, too many women (laughs) uh, is that he's expected to now be the new Syrah permanently. And uh, O'Brien only has as much uh, put upon annoyance to deal with one job. He can't do that for two jobs at once. Uh, As we said before, like there was really no specificity about the format to what this story that has to be told. Uh, The minute the 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 magistrate just tells O'Brien that all he has to do to defeat the Dalrock is tell the story, which like it kind of sounds like a lot of those. uh, grind set instagram influencers who are just like all you got to do is just hustle get on that get on that grind all you got to do is do the work no specifics (laughs) just just like well you just gotta do it uh when the magistrate leaves uh sarah's assistant a form the former sarah's assistant hovath lingers a little gives o'brien a little bit of a knowing look very clearly suspicious O'Brien decides that the main object now to get them out of this pickle is figure out what the Dalrock is. Because, you know, it's not a hologram. It's not uh, an illusion. It's not a cookie. It's not a cake. Like, what is this uh, ontological fig newton of the Dalrog? Uh, sorry, the uh, the Dalrock. I almost called it the Balrog. That's probably why they where they got that name. They probably were just like, ah, let's call it the... The, the, the other nerds will enjoy this, this reference. <laughs> like, the other nerds within the nerds. <laughs> If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it 7 days a week, and you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity, by supporting us, at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Back on the station, uh, Jake and Nog, once again, they're, as- they're, they're, they're ringing at Varys' doorbell asking her if she can come out to play, but she's too busy being a fucking political leader. Um, but, uh, but she actually ends up asking, asking them for a little bit more advice. And, uh, and uh, she asked Nog in particular for advice on like, if an opportunity is worth the risk. And uh, Nog ends up giving her some advice that she actually finds useful. And Nog decides to celebrate the fact that they were able to cheer up Varys a little bit by going to steal Odo's bucket, which, uh, you know what? I, uh, I, I, I never hated Nog, but now I love Nog. Uh, let's go. Let's, this, this, they, this really sort of makes them seem like sort of little rascals type ragamuffins. Like, let's go steal Officer O'Malley's baton. Oh, yeah. Oh, your kids messing with me, baton again. But uh, <laughs> so they go. I, I I wrote I wrote down in my notes that uh, oh, so clearly the only reason they're stealing Odo's bucket is because there are no mailboxes on Deep Space Nine to knock over with baseball bats. <laughs> so one thing I keep noticing here is that Barris, despite being like a Again, she's like a designated representative of the Paku. She has no chaperones or any kind of like entourage or, you know, attaches, uh, um, you know, like despite the fact that she's making these negotiations on behalf of an entire group of people. So she goes with them to steal the bucket. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's like Ambassador Ferris Bueller's day off. <laughs> but then it turns out they go to security and they find his bucket. But it turns out this was all a prank to humiliate Jake in front of Ferris by pouring like but Nog finds the bucket and then goes, oh no, Odo, and throws like some shit at Jake that ends up just being oatmeal. Actually, it, this is this is this might reveal some of my you know initial reactions to things because my first thought was, oh, this is gonna be the moment where Nog, you know, turns on Jake because he's jealous and like, oh no, a girl is turning the bros against each other. Why are girls so evil? Like I thought that was gonna be the story. But no, no, Jake starts laughing and everybody starts laughing and it's just literally them having some, uh, you know, good, uh, again, rascally, ragamuffin-y fun. And then, of course, because kids are having fun, that's when Odo and Cisco arrive and catch them in the act. So there's the aspect of that scene where it comes off like a Mentos commercial, right? Where it's like <laughs> something bad happens and then, you know, music rises and they're like, ha ha, you, you're so funny. Odo's bucket. <laughs> But uh, th there's a subtext to this also, which I think is intentional, where the scene can also be read as a racist joke or a prank, but also an ableist prank about Odo. So I think there was that subtext to this where you laugh and you're like, oh, it's all innocent. But then you also are cringing in the moment where you're like, oh, in hindsight, that's kind of fucked up. Like that kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. Yeah, I did forget to in the episode, they specifically say in dialogue that so. The reason why this is a prank is because Odo every like six, it's it's been, we've mentioned this in previous episodes, but like Odo every like 16 hours, I think, has to return to a liquid state and regenerate in his bucket. So, yeah, you're right. That is kind of like stealing, a, you know, uh, but it, but again, there is that sort of diffusion where they're not actually going to steal it. They were just sort of, you know, just playing a, a little friendly prank on Jake. But you know what? That that really I obviously I didn't catch that. So that's a good, good. uh little extra way to look at it we go back to the planet and we see that uh o'brien and bashir have been scanning some of the damage caused by the dalrock during his previous attack and it's left a neutrino trace which if you we don't need to know what that means it's just it's a particle signature every time there's a particle signature we know that the plot can be finally advanced <laughs> I think you mentioned that before. Whenever they bring up neutrinos, you're like, oh, there it is. There's the clue. The MacGuffin signature. Um, but, uh, it, you know, it's like it leaves a neutrino trace, even though it has no physical substance. So uh, O'Brien forms a hypothesis that there must be a control mechanism somewhere. Uh, but before he can go looking to it, uh, looking for it, he's uh, the villagers start swarming him like the lepers during that one number in Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh, they're like asking him to like bless a child. and. You know, O'Brien, of course, as in every job, he is just given too much to do. Uh, Hovath, of course, sees, you know, the Syrah, uh, the new, this uh, usurper to the Syrah dumb, uh, getting all this adulation and seethes with jealousy. But once uh, O'Brien is able to escape from that crowd and uh, start scanning the Syrah's room for possible control devices, Hovath finally attacks him with a knife. And uh, during the struggle, Bashir comes in to help O'Brien, but is of absolutely no help. Because even when he joins in the fight, and it is now two people struggling against one, it still takes a lot of effort to finally disarm Hovath. 
I like how Bashir's first reaction isn't even to run and help. He runs towards the window to get a better look at first. <laughs> oh, hey, what's going on? And then he runs in. Whoa, they could be playing. <laughs> they could be having a very aggressive hug. Well, I mean, I guess as a doctor, you want to get a thorough assessment before you act. I must diagnose the situation. But uh, they they disarm Hovath, and then they've. <laughs> I like how I, I like how uh, once they get the knife away from him, O'Brien just sort of scolds him like a really naughty boy. It's like, care to explain to me why you're trying to stab me? He wasn't even that mad. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't really. It's just that's what when you live the life of Miles O'Brien, you just kind of shrug <laughs> off people trying to stab you. You're just like, really, like why you why are you doing the one doing why are you the one doing this this week? It's like his reactions to everything is the same. Whether Bashir says something annoying or you try to kill him, it's always mild annoyance. Just whatever happens in his head, he's always just waiting for quitting time. Like That's just the mentality that he carries. In his head, he's just waiting for to punch out. <laughs> I just work here. So uh, apparently, this Syrah was... Uh, so Hovath wasn't just the Syrah's assistant. He was his apprentice. He had been studying with him for nine years. But the Syrah picking O'Brien, according to him, was his way of punishing him for having failed to stop the Dalrock when he was given to uh, the opportunity to do so three nights previously. So finally, he uh, he's able to reveal uh, to O'Brien and Bashir that the Dalrock is controlled with a bracelet that contains a fragment of an orb from the Celestial Temple. And Bashir mentions that they had one of those things on the station previously, and I wanted to specify, if anybody was wondering, that they're referring to uh, Culus, that orange uh, glowing thing that turned into a stingray and went into the wormhole. So that's, uh, one can form a Dalrock, one can turn into a stingray, one can take on the form of an ice bucket, one can take on the form of a Sasquatch. We'll see what, we'll see what the rest of them can do. So apparently, so then he explains that the Dal, this Dalrock ritual, it almost feels a little bit more like the, the Ennis Knoll Ennis. It, it feels like this would have been a good uh, solution to the Ennis Knoll Ennis conflict from the previous episode. Because apparently, like, the, 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 vis- the village was originally filled with a bunch of different people who were all fighting each other for different reasons. And this whole Dalrock ritual was created to unite everybody and give them something to fight against because the orb fragment helped create a physical manifestation of the villagers' fears and then could create, and then the Care Bear Stare is like a manifestation of the villagers' thoughts that allow them to control the manifestation. But the villagers don't know this. This is like a secret passed down from Syrah to Syrah. So basically the Dalrock is like if the U.S. manufacturing wars in the Middle East was good somehow. Yeah, I was thinking about the same thing, how the Dalrock is basically a man-made devil to control the people, which sounds familiar, right? Not only obviously about the power of religion, but also to your point, politics, but on top of that bigotry, it doesn't have to be a spiritual demon, but could be foreigners to black people, to Chinese, to feminists, to trans and so forth. But at the very, at the very least, the Dalrock is a fictional being. Like if it, it, That's the only way that it's good. But uh, back to this situation. So the Syrah, I mean, so Hovath, like, you know, basically wants another shot at this. And O'Brien, because he didn't want the job in the first place, is, is 
willing to just say, okay, you do it. And, uh, but the, the magistrate comes in and says, no, that guy already failed. Like, no, we cut back to the station. Uh, Cisco and, uh, Varys are having another talk, uh, <laughs> after them getting caught. And Varys says that, uh, Bulk and Skull or Jake and Nog are nice boys who didn't mean any harm. And, uh, this scene between Cisco and Varys is an, is another interesting little sub thread about how, um, you know, uh, it, it can sort of reflect on when we talk about like child soldiers or just, you know, pe- young people getting thrust into conflict because of war is that oftentimes, you know, they are denied the regular rights of childhood that we associate most children in America as having you know, like playtime and friendship and, and those kinds of things. So we see, we see sort of this, this sort of helps us understand why in the midst of these important political uh, negotiations, you know, she's willing to put stuff down to hang out with these two kids because she needs companionship from other people closer to her age. And she also needs a father figure. And because Cisco just gives off such reassuring, strong dad energy you know, of course, I w- if I was around Benjamin Sisko, I'd want him to be my dad. So that makes sense. In this scene also, Sisko actually says land back to Varys. And to the point that you're raising about children and lost childhood, it also seemed like an allegory when um, Varys was explaining how to be respected, she has to be more toxic than the adults, which seems to be playing on the idea of having to be more toxic to men to gain men's respect but instead of making that directly like something feminist they use the allegory of children and adults yeah 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 because she basically says that like the reason why she can't compromise with the navad is because her father had the luxury to compromise because the navad already feared him but if she compromises it'll be seen as weakness and cisco says that basically being a great great leader actually means sometimes taking the riskier choice in this case like you know ceding this territory to the navat in exchange for something else and then the scene ends with vera saying that she has an idea where both sides can say yes so then we cut back and now it's showtime it's time for o'brien to fight the dalrock all by himself but uh much like any person less than a year into his performing career the first time he bombs he completely loses it he starts just completely freestyling the story, and the crowd naturally hates improv. So the uh, Hovath sees that O'Brien is failing and uh, is like, what should I do? And Bashir uh, basically says, well, what if the Syrah actually cooked this up as a test for you to see if like, you were willing to fight for your position? And, uh, and then Hovath is like, oh, wait, yeah, why didn't I think about, since we're doing all these other different 90s sports movie tropes, I forgot that I have to uh, pass the test. So he goes up, and uh, Miles, Miles gets zapped by the Dalrock, and, the, uh, and Hovath takes over and uh, brings it home strong. He's able to tell the story and get the people hyped again, and finally the Care Bear Stare comes back with a vengeance. <laughs> so a sermon saves the village which again doesn't have to be religious because the Western media machine tends to make celebrities of politicians and Jingoist speeches are not much different than sermons about the Christians against the devil. Yeah, there is an interesting like a sort of message here about like the power of rhetoric 
as as a way to you know unite people and uh, either prevent or manufacture conflict. Which, like you know, I think what I like what I like here about this this uh, episode is because because it doesn't focus like entirely on one of the two plots. It doesn't try to say moralize too much about or like give a definite opinion on like is this right to have this Dalrock ritual? Like it it does seem to like sort of give a little bit of a tacit approval to it. They just because it's like well it stopped people from fighting, but we do have the room to be, be like, hmm, is this is a little messed up, right? Like you are deceiving people into peace, but hmm. I, I do like how they how they accommodate they hold space for that ambiguity. It was a lot less judgmental in a centrist way than battle lines. Yeah, absolutely. It's just like saying like, okay, you know, this is just how it's going with these people. This is what these people do. And we don't judge them. We just let them figure out how to have their way of life. So we get back to the station and we finally see that the Navat and Paku are on their way to some kind of compromise. And uh, as Varys is on her way off the station, Jake and Nog say goodbye. And Varys uh, gives Nog a kiss on the cheek. But then uh, in the midst of his ecstasy, Odo shows up to take both him and Jake off to horny jail. <laughs> so it ends with Lambac plus trade compromise. And I think the writers know that's unlike real life, but I think that's the point, right? That's the point that they're trying to make. But also, this didn't involve any corporate interests, which makes it a lot simpler, right? It just was about these two sides instead of like all these other middlemen that are involved in every geopolitical decision that is made in real life, right? So that's also the nice side of fiction is if you don't want them involved, you could just not write them into the story, right? Right, exactly. Well, yeah, actually, I didn't, you know, it's sometimes it was easy for me to forget that the Navat and the Paku were also Bajorans. You know why? It's because, like, we were seeing all these different sort of subsects of the same alien species. We were able to see this sort of diversity of cultures and ways of life within one planet. So, again, we're, like, really taking strides to develop what up until this point had really been uh, monolithic alien cultures. So this is one of the, this is a nice, good, like, you know, platonic example of what Deep Space Nine starts doing to really enrich the Star Trek franchise. All right. Well, next week, we will be doing another episode that takes us back to Bajor. Uh, it'll be episode 14, Progress! We all like progress. But if you like this episode and you like the show overall, please go to patreon.com slash southpawpod and kick in a little money to the entire Southpaw project. For as little as $4 a month, you can uh, become a member of our Discord. And that money helps support not just this show, but also the Prime Southpaw podcast. It helps fund Fight Study, um, Working Stiff Radio, which is uh, pro wrestling oriented, Pride Never Die, which is uh, MMA from an LGBTQ perspective, and all the other things that are on the horizon to keep expanding this lovely community. Uh, until then, I'm Angel, and my co host is Sam. Da -da 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 -da.